But it is good to see all of you. And this morning we're going to pick back up with a series that Pastor Jason began two weeks ago titled, The Depth and Riches of God's Forgiveness. In that initial lesson, Jason covered God's forgiveness and our curse. That audio is available on our website and our app. There was an issue with the app this week that I was informed of uh, with Jason's audio, but it's, it's fixed now, so you can access it on the app. And if you didn't listen to that, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, we have a, a very specific strategy that we're operating from to try to help us all comprehend the magnitude of God's forgiveness. Well, this morning we're going to look at another facet of God's forgiveness. So our lesson this morning is titled, God's Forgiveness and Our Guilt. God's Forgiveness and Our Guilt. So I want to start uh, by asking you a very personal question, and then we'll all take turns sharing our personal lives with one another. No, you won't have to share it, but uh, this is a rhetorical question. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? The question is not whether you have it. You have it. And I think, medically speaking, if you're sitting there thinking, no, I don't have any guilt, I think that qualifies you as a psychopath. So, um, don't tell anyone that you're thinking that. So the question is, not whether you have guilt. Your guilt is a given. One secular psychologist, critical theorist that I read this week said, our guilt is our unassailable historical condition. You are guilty. And you're guilty for... Uh, all sorts of things, and this writer would have you think that you're guilty of things that you're actually not guilty of. But you are guilty. And the question ultimately is, what are you doing with your guilt? What do you do with it? Well, I read another article this week by an English professor who was also a critical theorist on the topic of guilt. And listen to how she began her article. I feel guilty about everything. Already today, I've felt guilty about having said the wrong thing to a friend. Then I felt guilty about avoiding that friend because of the wrong thing that I'd said to her. Plus, I haven't called my mother again. Guilty. And I really should have organized something special for my husband's birthday. Guilty. I gave the wrong kind of food to my child. Guilty. I've been cutting corners at work lately. Guilty. I skipped breakfast. Guilty. I snacked instead. Double guilty. I'm taking up all this space in a world with not enough space in it already. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Nor am I feeling good about feeling bad. Not when my sophisticated friends never fail to remind me of how self-involved, how self-involved, self-aggrandizing, politically conservative, and morally stunted it is to be guilty. Poor me. Guilty about being guilty. Filial guilt, fraternal guilt, spousal guilt, maternal guilt, peer guilt, work guilt, middle class guilt, white guilt, liberal guilt, historical guilt, Jewish guilt. I'm guilty of them all. So if you want to just pick me up, this would be a good article to read this week. (laughs) But this poor lady 
she captures well the problem of guilt in our society. It's pervasive. Uh, we are all, uh, well, we are at large a guilt-ridden people from religious people to the secular atheists who wrote this article. Uh, guilt is something that is inescapable and it's constantly confronting us. And the question again is, what do we do with it? Well, the universal response of our society is that we have to wage a war on guilt. We, we need to get rid of it. And society offers us a few strategies to escape our guilt. And I've got them listed there for you. And so I want us to look at those uh, one by one and work through how um, really the options that society gives us for escaping guilt. The problem, though, in our society really is that our society encourages sin everywhere, but will not tolerate the guilt that sin produces. And for our purposes, just uh, preliminarily, I'll give you a better definition as we go, but we can define guilt as the miserable effects that sin brings into a person's life. Guilt, the miserable effect that sin brings into a person's life. To the world, guilt is a pollutant. It's the fly in the ointment of life. It's a rock in the shoe. Uh, It's an irritant that we just need to get rid of. Uh, One contemporary psychologist said that it's a useless emotion. That's what guilt is. And because this is society's view, the objective is to escape it. All right, let's let's get rid of guilt so that we can move on with our lives and enjoy it. Well, the first uh, method for escaping guilt really is to deny it. You want to escape guilt? Just deny its reality. According to our culture, guilt is merely a societal construct. It's been imposed on us from our parents, society, culture, and especially religion. The real problem and source of our guilt is that our inner instinctual self what Freud called the animal instinct, what we would call our sinful flesh. So the real problem, society says, at least some segment of society says, is that our inner animal is being oppressed by society and culture and family. And uh, Freud actually said the beginnings of guilt in your life are that you, are, uh, you feel guilty because you are attracted to your opposite sex parent. This was Freud's system. Right? He was, everything he did was sexually charged uh, because he gave way to this inner animal instinct is what he said we need to do. He called it the id. Uh, man is essentially a procreative animal uh, that needs to just procreate and survive. And Freud then called guilt a feeling. Right? Guilt is just this feeling that we have. It's not a reality. It's a feeling. And we need to break the bonds of society um, or, or else redefine what is most essential so that we can let our inner animal out. Guilt is a feeling produced by the artificial pressures of society on our inner instinctu- instinctual self. And so guilt is artificial. It's not substantial. It's not real. This is where the idea of false guilt came from. And so if guilt is merely a societal construct, 
that's oppressing us, um, then we need to throw off guilt. We need to get rid of it and let our fleshly desires rule. Guilt, uh, in this view, is, is a hidden parasite. Your life would be wonderful, except for your guilt. It's a hidden parasite that saps all the life out of you and causes psychological deterioration. Uh, Nietzsche said that guilt makes us weak. Freud said that guilt makes us neurotic. And another philosopher said that guilt is what makes us inauthentic. Guilt is a problem. We just need to get rid of it. Um, And the way we get rid of it is deny its existence. Uproot it, throw it out. And we can move on and enjoy our lives as they're meant to be lived. But there's a second way. You can deny guilt or you can defy guilt. This is what the Bible calls hardening your conscience. Or searing your conscience. You sin and the result of sin is the feeling of guilt. But rather than confessing and repenting, you defy your guilt. You continue to press against your conscience until you're finally devoid of the function of your conscience. Remember, the conscience is God's gift to us. It's the warning system within us. It's like the the smoke alarm, the fire alarm in your house that detects smoke. It lets you know that something is not right. There's a problem. And in this way, if we want to defy our conscience, um, the smoke alarm goes off in you know, the kitchen of our life, so to speak. The smoke alarm is going off, and, and we walk up to the smoke alarm, uh, and rather than looking for what is the problem, we just punch the smoke alarm. Right? We take it off the wall and throw it on the ground, stomp on it, and then go back to doing what we were doing. Right? We don't respond appropriately to the alarm. It's like, you know, another metaphor would be the check engine light on your vehicle. It comes on, something's wrong, you're like, ah, who cares about oil pressure? Let's just keep going, right? Um, and you're going to make a mess of your vehicle. <laughs> and if you do this to guilt, you make a mess of your life. Paul speaks of those who in the last days will continue in sin to the degree that they will, their consciences will be seared as with a branding iron. Right? Let's not listen to conscience. Right? Let's just keep defying it. And if you defy it long enough, it will stop going off. Right? If you punch it hard enough, it will stop. He also, in Ephesians 4.19, he speaks of those who have become callous since they have given themselves over to sensuality. Right? If you keep sinning in the same way against your conscience without confessing and repenting, you will become calloused. Your conscience will be seared. And you won't have to worry about guilt anymore. Right? But the problem of guilt remains. It's still there. It's not fixed. You can, you can close your eyes to the, the, the check engine light. But the problem is still there. Well, that's the second way. There's a third way to escape your guilt. And that's to drown it. You can drown your guilt. Now, this is very prevalent in our culture. Uh, You can drown your guilt with entertainment and pleasure. You can entertain yourself so much that you no longer think of your guilt. Uh, This is the equivalent of of putting your fingers in your ears as the fire alarm's going off, 
or your conscience is going off, telling you something's wrong, and you just plug your ears. I don't have to worry about that. I'm just going to stay in the basement, keep doing what I'm doing. There may be a fire in the kitchen. I don't know, but I don't care. <laughs> um, you're drowning out the noise of your guilt. Amusement is the happiness of those who cannot think, says one writer. It's the happiness of those who cannot think. So you don't want to think, so you just amuse yourself to death and drown out the problem of your guilt. You can also do this by work. Just keep working so you don't have to think about this alarm going off. You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You can do it with medicine. Right? There are medicines that you can take that will help you uh, silence your guilt. So you don't have to think about it anymore. You know, it's the equivalent of, of you know, stepping on a nail and the nail is in your foot and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, okay, I see the issue here. Um, you've got a nail in your foot. So I'm going to give just, all you have to do is just take some Aleve every day and it's going to help you, you know, deal with this. There's medicine that will numb you or we'll, you know, we'll do a... Um, a, a numbing medicine right there around that nail so that you can just keep living your life. And you would say, just, let's just take the nail out. Uh, but medicines, there's a way that you can take medicine to help you silence your guilt. Um, the abuse of medicine, drugs, will help you do this. I, I read, it's going to sound like I read articles all week. I actually, I've been reading articles about this. Um, I read a different article in a secular journal this week that tracked the effects of alcohol on the brain. And it was really curious because he said that alcohol works much like a common tranquilizing drug, uh, Valium or Xanax. Uh, these drugs help, you, help numb you uh, to what you have going on around in, you, in your life. Alcohol works similarly. It helps you to feel numb. That's why you start to stumble and slur if you drink too much. You want to drown out your guilt? Just drink a lot. You don't have to worry about it anymore. That's what our society says. This is not my counsel to you. I hope you know that. <laughs> don't go tell Pastor Dan. The same article, he said, college, college kids indulge in binge drinking because they're still bright-eyed novices when it comes to taking chemicals that alter their mood. The more they take, the merrier. Twenty years later, though, they may drink to feel less not to feel more, because life has become so oppressive and anxiety is so great. They seem, anxieties seem ready to spring under, from under every train of thought. So you've got anxiety, you feel oppressed, so you drink a lot, so you feel less. Right? This is common to us, we know this. So here's the, the counsel of culture. You want to escape your guilt, just drink, take medicine to numb yourself, and you can drown out the reality of your guilt. Right, that's the third option. But the fourth option really is the favorite of our society. It's the one that's touted the most. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen uh, many, even in the evangelical church, buy into this fourth strategy of dealing with guilt. And that is, you want to escape your guilt? Well, just blame somebody else. Just deflect it to someone else. Uh, claim the status of a victim. This is a surefire way for you to escape your guilt. I'm not responsible here. This is someone else's fault. I have to watch my time. I have a lot to cover. Um, but this is without a doubt the best and most popular way that our society 
uh, says guilt needs to be dealt with. Shift the blame into your parents or your siblings, society, or oppressive systemic structures. Uh, we see this in modern society, in modern psychology, uh, the social justice movement, even in our own homes, right? My children do this. Um, I tend to do this, right? This is my sinful tendency. And, and why is this so common? Why is it so common to deflect our guilt onto someone else? Well, it goes way, way back, doesn't it? Um, if we want to blame someone else for our guilt, we can blame Adam, right? He sinned. And what did he say? He said, the woman you gave me, right? she gave to me. So it's, not, it's definitely not my fault, says Adam. You're the one who gave me the woman, and she's the one who gave me the fruit. Right? So we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, so this is not news. Social justice movement, victim, uh, victimization of society, all of this, this is not new. This has been going on for a long, long time. And we tend to do this. It's the rut of humanity because, hey, like father, like son. Well, because this is such a relevant issue, and that clock is five minutes slow, I think, but this clock is right. Uh, let's turn to Ezekiel 18. I just want to show you something from Ezekiel 18. This is not going to be new to you. Uh, I just want to remind us of a really fundamental truth when it comes to deflecting our guilt. Ezekiel 18 is one of the most relevant texts to this issue of deflecting guilt. You'll remember that the context here is that Judah uh, is in rebellion, uh, and Judah has been exiled, uh, and still Judah refuses to acknowledge her guilt against God. So, uh, beginning in chapter 18, verse 1, Then the word of Yahweh, the Lord, came to me, saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. This is, occurs several times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's sort of cryptic for us. Um, but the idea here is that our fathers ate bitter food. And, and now our mouths are filling the bitterness. And the reason that God says this proverb is no longer going to be allowed is because of what they're, what they're saying by that is our fathers sinned and now we're the ones being punished for it. We're innocent. This is their fault. And now we're having to deal with their bad food choices. It's just coming on us. But the Lord says in verse 3, As I live, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, he says, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And then the soul who sins will die. Personal culpability. Personal responsibility. Each person will give an account for their lives individually before God. No more blame shifting. And no more poeticizing blame shifting. Don't put it in a proverb. It doesn't make it any better. Um... It's not going to be allowed. And really what uh, the prophet does, down uh, from verse 5 all the way through the end of the chapter, is he gives us essentially five uh, examples, you might call them case studies, 
of this sort of blame shifting, different scenarios where blame shifting might be appropriate. Uh, the first one he gives in verses 5 to 9, there's a righteous man. Right? He's a righteous man before the Lord. Um, and then, starting in verse 10, um, that righteous man will be held accountable for his life before the Lord and be approved, the prophet says. But what about if that righteous man has a wicked son? Can that wicked son ride on the coattails of his righteous father? Uh, the prophet through the Lord says in verses 10 to 13, No, he may not. Uh, verse 13, He will not live, the wicked son. He has committed all these abominations. He has, not his father. He has. And he will surely be put to death, and his blood will be on his own head. Well, here's another example. What about if that wicked son of the righteous man, are you tracking with me? <laughs> the wicked son of the righteous man, what if that wicked son then has a righteous son? Surely the righteous son is going to be punished for the wicked father's uh, sin. Verse 14 to 18. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he committed, and observing does not do likewise. He doesn't do all these sins, 15, 16, 17, uh, the end of verse 17. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. He will not be punished for his father's iniquity. And we could go on and multiply examples, but just jump to verse 30. Therefore, says God, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Each according to his conduct, declares the Lord. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to your children. No, to you. Now, we do know from the Ten Commandments and other places that God visits the iniquity of the fathers unto their children and children's children. And the idea there is that the influences of the father do pass down to the children, but they are not punished. Children are not punished for the sins of the father. So this uh, societal practice of deflecting uh, guilt onto someone else, uh, what does God think about that? It's wicked. Don't do it. Uh, each man uh, will stand before the Lord on his own. The soul that sins will die. And that takes us, then, to the reality of our guilt. The reality. We've seen the problem of our guilt in different ways society tries to escape it. But now we need to see the reality of our guilt. We can deny guilt, defy guilt, drown guilt, and even deflect guilt. But God is the one who has the final word. God is the one who gets to say the last word. So what does God say about our guilt? Well, let me give you a definition of guilt. I think it's a biblical definition, and then you'll see where I get this definition from. <clears throat> Biblically speaking, guilt is what you incur when you violate God's law. It is legal liability or culpability to punishment. Guilt is what you incur when you break God's law. What do we call it when you break God's law? What do we call that? Right. Sin is to break God's law. To be righteous is to be perfectly conformed to God's law. 
but we know that none is righteous. No, not one. And we know then, uh, based on that principle from Romans 3, that guilt is universal. Guilt is a universal reality. Uh, Biblically speaking, Leviticus 5.17 says this, Now if a person sins and does any of these things, these laws, which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware of these things, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. You break the law, you're guilty. If you're unaware of the law and you break the law, are you not guilty? You're guilty. You're guilty. Isaiah 24 says this, The earth in its entirety is polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed God's law. They have violated His statutes. They have broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. John 16, 7 and 8 says that the Spirit will come and convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When you're convicted, your conscience is awakened and the alarm goes off. The Spirit of God, the function of the Spirit in the world, is to convict the world of its guilt before God. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Let me give you a summary. Guilt is universal because sin is universal. Guilt is universal because sin is universal. Guilt is a universal experience of humanity because humanity is universally guilty before God. All right, so that's the universality of guilt. But look also, guilt is an objective fact. Guilt is an objective fact and not a feeling. We are immersed in a society that says guilt is a feeling, guilt is a feeling, guilt is a feeling. Biblically speaking, guilt is a fact. Guilt is not a feeling. Uh, It doesn't matter how you feel about your guilt, although it does in one sense. Um, The fact of guilt remains. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. He has become guilty of all. Of all. Here, James teaches that a single sin, however insignificant it may appear, makes someone guilty of all, guilty of all, uh, guilty of breaking the entire scope of God's law. It makes someone totally guilty and therefore liable to judgment. We should note here that this guilt is real. It's personal culpability before God for your sin. And it has nothing to do with how you feel about it. Now, the, the, the Bible is clear that guilt produces feeling. Guilt produces feeling of shame, of um, anger, of fear. Guilt produces feelings. 
but guilt itself is an objective reality that we have to acknowledge. Guilt is a fact. Now, there's much more we could say about that. Um, there, we could look at the idea of false guilt, the conscience. Uh, your conscience can be wrongly trained um, and produce guilt in you uh, for doing strange things like maybe not uh, wearing the proper socks or not wearing a skirt or not wearing your hair in a bun or not doing X, Y, or Z. And you can feel guilty because of that. Is it sin for you to, to not wear a skirt to worship? Um, it can be. It can be if it's against your conscience. Romans 14, whatever doesn't pr- proceed from faith is sin. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul teaches us that you, we, the worst thing that we can do as a believer, well, one of the worst things maybe, um, is to act against our conscience. To go against your conscience is sin to you. So if you have a conscience that's unbiblically trained or informed, uh, then you're going to be very sensitive about things that the Bible doesn't talk about. The good news about that is that your conscience can be retrained according to biblical principles. There's a lot to say about that. We can't say all that. So I said more than I should have already. Um, Guilt is an objective fact. Guilt is also an unpayable debt. Your guilt, right? So let's stop thinking about guilt in the abstract, right? Your guilt, the guilt that you know you have, right? That we all know you have, and you all know that I have, uh, because it's universal. Your guilt is an unpayable debt. Hosea 13 talks about that our, our iniquity, our sin and guilt is stored up before the Lord. A lifetime of guilt and iniquity stored up. Ezra in his prayer in Ezra 9, he says, our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has even grown to the heavens. Guilt compounds and grows and it becomes an unpayable debt that you cannot pay. Isaiah 1-4 says, Guilt weighs us down. Isaiah says in Isaiah 24 that the guilt of the earth, this is a fascinating, he says the guilt of the earth causes the earth to totter and shake because of its weight. <clears throat> You're familiar with uh, Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 where the king sets out to settle accounts with his slaves, and he calls the slaves in to settle accounts. And as he begins, there was a slave, one particular slave, who owed 10,000 talents. Do you remember this? 10,000 talents. So this is, uh, a talent is worth about 20 years of labor for the, you know, the average person. Of course, there were people who made more, but the average slave, servant, would have had to work 20 years to earn a talent. So 10,000 talents then was only 500 years of work to make up for it. 500 years of labor. Uh, that's an unpayable debt. And Jesus' whole point here is for everyone who hears him give this parable to say, the debt that you owe God, your guilt before him, is an unpayable debt. Put in 500 years of work 
and you still won't be able to pay it back. An eternity of working off what you owe will not be enough. Your guilt before God is so egregious and so outrageous and so deep that you could never pay it back. And for this reason, uh, our guilt is serious. Serious. God is a holy judge who will not leave, Exodus 34, 5 and 7, who will not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there, and he passed in front of Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You have a world of guilt that you are not even aware of within you. <clears throat> it is a debt that you could never pay off. And it's serious because it's against an eternally holy God. And God will not leave guilt unpunished. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. Hebrews 10.28 Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, this is the Old Testament era, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has disregarded or has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. And notice this, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And so the Hebrew writer says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So our guilt is universal. Uh, It's a universal reality. It's an objective fact. It's an unpayable debt. It's serious because it's against a holy God. So the question then becomes, what do we do with our guilt? What are are you going to do with your guilt? And and we might actually better ask the question, what has God done with our guilt? Right? What has God done with it? What has he promised to do with it? And this gets us to the very heart of the gospel. And this is why we're doing this series. It's not so that we can unpack all the uh, intricacies of guilt, but so that we can look at the wonderful pardon of our guilt. And this is what God has done. The first thing God did with your guilt, Christian, He laid the punishment for your sin and guilt onto our Lord. You're guilty, but the punishment has been paid. Isaiah 53, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. That's you, Christian. He was crushed for your iniquities. The the chastening for your well-being fell upon Jesus. By his scourging, 
you are healed. The Lord caused the iniquity that you had built up to fall onto Christ. For the transgression of God's people, Jesus took the stroke. The Lord was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. As a result of the anguish of Jesus' soul, the Father will see it and be satisfied. By Jesus' knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for guilty sinners. John, uh, in John one twenty nine, John the Baptist looks and sees Jesus coming and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus does for us. He takes away the sin, our sin, and He takes it upon Himself. He offered Himself once to bear the sins of many. Right? So that's the first thing. He laid the punishment for our sin upon Christ. Secondly, He pardons us of all of our debt. Your debt, that is, um, as Isaiah said, uh, mounts all the way up to the heavens. Jesus has pardoned it. It's wonderful. Look at uh, Colossians 2, 13-14. And I put this in your notes because I knew we weren't going to have time to turn to all these pages. You can hold me accountable to all of my proof texts here. Um, but listen to this, Colossians 2. So imagine your debt against God. It's a real debt. It's, it's deeper than you know. Your guilt is more um, pervasive than you've even begun to see. And one of the kind graces of God is that He doesn't let us see all the ways that we're guilty. If you knew that in this moment, you would not be able to even sit up in your chair. But God has pardoned us of all our debt. And this is explicitly taught in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Notice verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What are you talking about, Paul? What do you mean? Two aspects here that he's emphasizing. First, the certificate of debt. This refers to the catalog of your crimes against God, your debt that you owe God. It's the list containing what you owe for your sin. And Paul says, in Christ, God has taken that list. Here it is. This is your list. This is your debt. And he just erased it and said, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay, but what about the what if the list is still there and you can like take the list out and you can say oh yeah 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 this was still here right i can still see it well paul says second not only did god erase the record of a debt he nailed the thing to the cross all of our sin all of our debt transferred to christ christ pays what we owe therefore we are pardoned entirely that is what it means to be forgiven no record of sin debt anymore. There are many texts that we could go to validate that. Um, God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out transgressions. 
for my own sake. He does it for his sake, and that's for our good. It's wonderful. <clears throat> well, we could look at what do you do when you don't feel forgiven. Let me just give you a quick, a quick um, actually, sorry, I jumped the third point. The third point. So God promises, God has pardoned us of all our debt. Third, God has promised to not count our debt against us. Right? He's taken care of it, but he also has promised not to count it against us. Right? That's you. Right? You know your debt. You know your guilt. At least a fragment of it. And God comes to you and says, Ken, I'm not going to count it against you. It's wonderful. Listen to this. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And listen to this. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. God's promise in the new covenant is to not remember your sin against you. It's a promise of pardon. God is the one who wipes out transgressions for his sake. And in Isaiah 43, 25, he says, I will not remember your sins. He doesn't forget them. He's saying, I will not bring them to bear on you. I will not remember them. I will not call them to mind against you. Friends, that is God's promise to you. I will not, I will not remember your sin against you. If you are a sinner, that is the sweetest word you could hear, right? I will not count your sin against you. What if I don't feel forgiven, right? We've talked about objective forgiveness. What if I don't feel it? Well, here's a, here's a diagnostic for you. Uh, if you don't feel forgiven, read 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? That's reality. That's more real than you sitting in this chair right now. That is the reality of our lives. God's word dictates our reality, not our feelings. And when God says, if you confess your sin to me, I will pardon it. That's what's true. That's the absolute fact. This is what God says. And you might say, well, I still don't feel forgiven. R.C. Sproul gives an excellent account of, of this uh, with his, uh, he had a, well, I'm going to have to abbreviate this, but um, if you're, R.C. Sproul has an excellent 
uh, series on guilt. He has a little booklet on guilt. It'd be great to read. And he unpacks an episode where uh, he went to his pastor and he, he said, I just don't feel forgiven. I feel guilty and I don't feel forgiven. And his pastor said, okay, well, R.C., read First uh, John 1, 9. And he said, okay. He turned and read First John 1, 9. And R.C. said, yeah, I, I get that. I've confessed to the Lord, but I just still feel guilty. And his pastor said, okay, okay, I, I see now. So the issue is that you need to read First John 1, 9. Uh, and so he read First John 1, 9 again, uh, and he said, I, I don't know if you get what I'm saying. I, 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 I'm, I know this as fact, but I just don't feel, um, I don't feel forgiven. And his pastor said, okay, all right, I think I, I know what the issue is now. You need to read First John 1, 9. <laughs> and R.C. said, I got the point then. And the point was, R.C., it doesn't matter how you feel about it. I mean, that matters, of course, right? But the ultimate reality is that God has said, if you confess your sin to him, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is reality. And that's the reality of every Christian. We are forgiven. The debt has been paid. So what is the fruit of forgiveness? What's the result of this objective reality that God has pardoned us entirely? Well, there's no condemnation for us. That's for sure. And that's Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, the, the term condemnation does not denote merely a pronouncement of guilt, but the adjudication of punishment. It is the judicial pronouncement upon a guilty person. So in Christ, the punishment for your guilt fell to another. The pronouncement of condemnation that you know should come to you then will never come. You know you're guilty And sometimes that knowledge of your guilt overrides objective reality for you. And you feel guilty and you feel like there's no way I could be forgiven. Well, God says that your awareness of your guilt and the the punishment that it deserves will never come to you. (laughs) Never. It's wonderful. Well, what about if someone really important brings a charge against God's elect? Romans 8.33 Well, God is the one who justifies. Who then, if God justifies, who then is the one to condemn? There's no condemnation, Romans 8.1. Well, who's going to condemn the one that God says there's no condemnation of? That is, who's going to come along and pronounce the one guilty, the one that God has said, you're not guilty? Who would dare to do such a thing? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, he was raised And he is at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. There Jesus is, even now, interceding for those that he secured with his blood. He says, those are the ones for whom I paid their debt in full. Jesus, before the Father, is living proof that our debt has been paid in full. It's wonderful. There is no condemnation for us. I want to read you a a hymn that I love, and I'm going to read it from this hymnal because I'll forget all the words. But here here it goes. It's from Augustus Toplady. It's a great name. Uh, From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men 
Condemn me for that debt of sin which the Lord was charged to thee. Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whatever thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? Now listen to this third line. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. God will never come to you and say, it's time to pay up. Here's what you owe. The debt has been paid. And for that reason, we enjoy full pardon. No condemnation. We have peace with God. We have access to God. Romans 4.8 says, How blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. Blessed is happy. It's happy. How happy is the person against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. If, if someone came up to you today and said, you know your mortgage? We took care of it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You know that debt that you have? It's, it's done away with. You know, we came to you this morning when we said that. It's gone. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Do you think you would have a happy rest of the day? This is the Christian's life. Our debt is paid. We're happy people. right? We're happy people. Father, you are so good to us. Would you help us to remember just the measure of the goodness that we've experienced through Christ. And we love you for him. We love you for the forgiveness of our sin. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.